Sleep coach Tracy uses her experience with sleep to help those facing similar challenges or looking to improve theirs. On this episode of A Couple With A Coach, Tracy discusses the impacts of our daily lives having on our sleep habit and cycle. From nightcaps, supplements to menopause and weight loss, we cover loads of topics to help you get some better Z's. I'm Lucy, the founder of Coach Lucy, a community which focuses on health for life and gives it to you in the time it takes to make a cuppa and drink it. Welcome to A Cuppa with a Coach. Just like fitness, sleep also has those pills on the shelf that claim to give you that quick fix of a better night's sleep, the sleep that you have needed for so long that if you are a restless sleeper or a bad sleeper, that they're definitely going to work for you. Do these supplements really impact positively on our sleep or are they just the quick fix pills that they claim to be? So a lot of people who are looking for help with their sleep will turn to um, supplements and sprays and kind of these things that are that are external um, because they're relatively easy to find. You know, you get Facebook adverts for them. And um, if you're in a group, you get lots of spam for oils and pills and all these sorts of things. Um, but the only proven approach to dealing with insomnia, particularly chronic insomnia, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And the aim of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is to reconnect you with your internal ability to sleep because we don't ever lose that. We just kind of lose touch with it. And if people are constantly seeking for things out side of themselves, it actually can be really counterproductive because you develop, even if it's not an addictive substance, you develop a psychological dependence on something outside of you that you think is making you sleep. Um, So I don't generally advise them. Something we often see in films, maybe even with our parents or family members, or maybe even ourselves as a nightcap, a wee bit of whiskey before bed or a glass of wine. Does that improve or impact our sleep? I'm of, of two minds on that. So from a sleep point of view, doing anything that is really relaxing and enjoyable can help promote sleep. But if it becomes something that you feel like you have to do in order to sleep, it falls into that dependence on external things um, category. A little bit of alcohol earlier in the evening doesn't tend to have a big impact on sleep. So I generally don't suggest that people drink right before sleep, kind of to get to sleep, if you see what I mean. And particularly if you drink lots of alcohol, it pretty much deletes the most important part of the sleep cycle. Um, It takes your slow wave sleep and really chops it up and breaks it up. And that has long-term consequences for things like hormone release, um, producing enough growth factor for tissue repair and um, building new tissue, particularly if you're uh, an athlete uh, like myself, that sleep is really important growth point of view. You'll find that over time, you'll be waking up more and more in the night during that particular time in your sleep cycle where you really need to be getting that good deep sleep. I don't know about you guys but I generally used to think that when you fell asleep that was you there was only two stages of sleep there was being awake and being asleep but there is what we call a sleep cycle and there are loads of different stages that occur during your period of rest when you are asleep and that is something that Tracy is going to discuss in a little bit more depth. Explaining how that potentially changes because of age and what your body really requires from its sleep. The amount of sleep that people need uh, tends to be very individual and there's a genetic connection to that. Overall, the proportion of time that people spend during certain cycles of sleep tends to be pretty consistent across people. And it's a little bit age related and less time in certain parts of sleep than younger people will. The amount of sleep that people need is genetically determined. So whether you need eight hours, nine hours, seven hours, seven and a half hours, everybody has a a certain amount that they as an individual need. But across people, 
people will consistently spend a certain proportion of their night in certain stages of sleep. Um, and it's a little bit age dependent. Um, for example, older people will spend less time in certain parts of sleep than younger people are. Brain needs at different times of our life. The more active a person is, the more sleep drive they build throughout the day. So a person who is more active is going find it a little bit easier to fall asleep and stay asleep than somebody who is sedentary. For, um, for lifting athletes, that, that slow wave sleep, that deeper sleep is particularly important for them because that is the time of night when our growth factor kind of goes into overdrive, our immune system of doing its business and cleaning things, sorting things out so that we can repair and rebuild our tissues. And from an athlete's point of view, also ground, and I work with um, elite sports people. And one of the things that is the most consistent correlate to developing injuries on the pitch particularly in young athletes, is not footwear and it's not training um, overload, for example. It's the quality of their sleep. Um, and I found this quite surprising myself um, and picked it up from a podcast um, by a, a physio, an elite physiotherapist. Um, so I wasn't even researching this from a sleep point of view, but found that absolutely fascinating. As a coach for general health and well-being, not just fitness focused, I try to ensure that it's not just exercise that my clients focus on, it's really a kind of well-balanced lifestyle and routine and sleep has a huge big part of that. Along the process of that, we come across many hurdles, some of which is menopause and which causes impacts on our sleep. Our sleep might be different to what it was when we were younger to now that we are at an age in which we are going through these hormonal changes and how much they impact our sleep. Sometimes that is something we cannot control, but sometimes there are ways to make that sleep better and how to improve that. There are a couple of different factors um, that are in play for uh, women of my age um, who are entering perimenopause through menopause and who are postmenopausal, um, there is very little from a to affect things like the hot flashes and the, the changes in hormones, because that's more of a medical intervention side of things. Um, and the interventions tend to focus on uh, kind of supplementing progesterone. As our progesterone levels drop um, during that, um, that shift uh, into the years ahead of us, um, they receptors and so they can make it difficult to, to stay asleep and it can make us feel like we have to stay up a little bit later in order to get tired enough to go to sleep um, and the the combination of hormonal surges that create that adrenaline rush that give us hot flashes in the middle of the night um, create creates a lot of bodily stress you know we get pounded with cortisol and adrenaline in the middle of the night and the most important thing that I tell people who are experiencing uh, those hot flashes in order to protect the sleep that they do have while they're getting uh, supportive nutritional and medical intervention for the symptoms is to make sure that you don't stay in bed while you're having those distressing feelings. Um, because we spend our whole life when we're sleeping well, associating our bed with a nice, cozy, safe place that's associated with sleep. The more time we spend in bed uh, awake, distressed, having hot flashes, um, the worse our sleep will become and it will build on itself. Um, and people want to stay in bed because they're tired and they're afraid of missing out on sleep. And that actually compounds the problem. Um, so the, it's kind of a double whammy for women in, in that age group to be dealing with all of the changes that they're dealing with. Um, it's often a very mentally challenging transition for women. 
and the impact that it has on their sleep is psychological and physiological. Sleep is your body's way of resting and recovering and that's super important because that type of recovery can never fully happen unless you are asleep. It has a huge impact on many of our own goals for a large percentage of us that is weight loss and your sleep does have a huge role in weight loss. People are trying to lose weight through exercise. They're trying to do body recomp enough sleep it's going to be a big struggle um, the other side of the coin is no matter what you're trying to do if you're not sleeping you're more susceptible to feeling stress not sleeping in and of itself can raise your cortisol levels and make your body more resistant to doing what you would like it to do i don't know about you but i do love a little power nap i love to put my phone on a 15 minute timer close the blinds just lie on top of my bed and just shut my eyes for a wee bit sometimes this either makes or breaks my sleep at night. What is your thoughts on naps? Do you like them? Do you not? Are you with them? Are you against them? Do they affect our sleep drive? In general, um, napping can be important for safety. And so the, the, the word is, the, the expression is, you nap for sleepiness and not for sleep. Because if you take a two hour nap in the afternoon, you're actually sabotaging your sleep the next night. Um, sleep drive, which is built through wakefulness and physical activity, um, gets eroded by doing things like laying down and taking a nap. Um, we build up a, at a certain rate throughout the day. And if you take a nap, it takes quite a big dent out of it. So I usually advise my clients to nap for safety. So if you are actually literally sleepy and um, you have to go drive a car, a forklift, um, uh, go deadlifting, whatever it happens to be, where you really need to not be really sleepy in order to be safe. Uh, take a nap, short nap under 30 minutes and no later than three o'clock in the afternoon. And then push your bedtime back so that you can actually make up that deficit in the sleep drive that you created by taking the nap. In general, people who don't have trouble sleeping should worry about naps. It's people who already have trouble sleeping should worry about taking a nap. If you do have trouble sleeping, how often do you Google the issues that you have during your sleep? Tracy discusses in depth some more of the sleep disorders that she works with one-to-one -one and with her clients and some things that people might look out for in their own sleeping habits. Yes, there's a whole host of conditions called hypersomnias, which are characterized by sleeping too much. Um, I deal with uh, insomnia rather specifically, but there are other sleeping disorders. And a lot of times people will think that they have insomnia when they might have something else. And I think it's really important to differentiate between the kind of sleeping trouble that is, uh, that is safe and the kind of sleeping trouble that is um, something that needs medical intervention. And it actually goes back to that sleepiness point of view. People with insomnia are tired and wired. Actually, they usually have trouble taking naps because their arousal levels are so high. That's what makes it difficult for them to sleep. But there are most other sleeping disorders are characterized by being really sleepy in the daytime. So when I work with somebody, I'll actually screen them for what we call pathological sleepiness. If people are sitting at a stoplight and they're drifting off, or if they sit down on the couch in the afternoon to have a conversation and they're falling asleep, we would call that an abnormal amount of sleepiness. And they really need to be investigated by a sleep specialist rather than going on Google and looking for cures for insomnia. The golden question. How much sleep do we really need? Yeah, people ask all the time, how much sleep do I need? And the answer is, and it's not the same for everybody, 
The answer is the right amount of sleep for you is the minimum amount of sleep that you need in order to feel refreshed and active during the day, fall asleep in 15, 20 minutes at night. Um, and if you wake a couple of times in the night, which is totally normal, you don't have difficulty falling back asleep. So for some people that's six and a half hours, for some people that's nine hours. Um, and if you are somebody who needs six and a half, seven, seven and a half hours of sleep, and you think you need eight because you read it somewhere and you spend more time in bed trying to get that eight because you think something bad's going to happen if you don't get eight, you're actually gonna be eroding your ability to sleep well because you're spending time in bed trying and straining and creating effort around sleep when sleep is a passive process. And if we try to force it by trying to catch up on sleep or trying to get more sleep or having an elaborate routine at night in order to make sleep happen, it's actually really counterproductive. You've probably seen them on YouTube, on Instagram, potentially on Facebook some people's evening routine, their sleep routine before they go to bed. Do you have a really elaborate routine before you go to bed or is it a quick off the phone, head in the pillow, is that you out for the count? Or do you put a little bit more effort into your sleep routine and does that impact your sleep and make it better? Or should we shorten that and reduce it and make it a faster routine to get to bed? It's more the intent and the effort behind them. So I like to have a bath in the evening. Sometimes I like to have a glass of wine in the evening. Some people like to have their cup of chamomile tea in the evening. A variety of things that relax us before bed is a really good idea. Um, like having a buffer zone where we just do things that relax us and make us feel happy. There's a big difference between that and having a list of things that you have to do. I've seen these lists before. I have to put the lavender spray pillow on an hour before bed, right after I take the bath that has to be a certain temperature. And then I have to have this tea. And then 30 minutes before bed, I have to take this pill all because it's going to make them sleep. So they're trying to sleep and trying to make it happen. There's effort and stress behind that. And that's very counterproductive. Is there such a thing as too much or too little sleep? Generally, having a consistent sleeping um, window is helpful and conducive to good sleep because it, what it does is it allows us to build up a consistent amount of sleep drive through the day. So I tend to think of the sleeping cycles actually starting in the morning. When people have things going on, like we all have things that go on, sometimes we stay up later because we have a social life pre-COVID, et cetera. Going to bed a little bit later for people who don't have a sleeping problem is not going to be a problem. The consistency that's really important is getting up at the same time so that you're consistently building up that sleep drive. So on the night where you do happen to stay up late, you're not gonna sleep as much, but you're gonna be able to sleep a little bit easier earlier the next night. My body can't handle caffeine at the best of times, but does this caffeine have an impact on our sleep? It's, that's interesting because caffeine has quite a long half-life and can remain in our systems for quite a long time. Um, people become habituated and less sensitive to the effects of caffeine and they probably suffer less if they drink later in the afternoon. It's like with, um, with um, in athletes, caffeine can improve performance as long as you're actually having more than you used to have, or if you have drank none, then you start taking some. It's because we're not habituated to it. So the effect is larger. That is pretty consistent because of the way the receptors work, um, the way our body deals with caffeine. If you are used to drinking caffeine later in the day, it's going to have less of an impact on your sleep than say for myself, I drink quite a lot of caffeine, but early in the day, if I had a coffee at four o'clock in the afternoon, I can guarantee you I won't be asleep when I need to be asleep in order to get up at five. What is a sleep coach and how can they really help with 
our sleep? Do you have to be suffering from a sleep disorder to seek a sleeping coach or can you just be someone who is looking to improve their own sleep? I tend to offer my services across the board and I do really careful screening of people when I choose to work with them because somebody may have trouble sleeping and not feel great during the day, but it might not be insomnia. It might be something else. And my remit is insomnia. And if people have, I suspect, some other kind of sleeping disorder, the safe and responsible thing to do is to refer them out um, for a few reasons. They are probably likely going to need medical attention um, in order to work on that particular sleeping disorder, whatever it happens to be. The other thing is that the most effective interventions for chronic insomnia could potentially be dangerous for people who have something like obstructive sleep apnea. So it's really important to kind of be safe. Um, so of that general population, whether they are sporty or not, um, tend to be uh, medically and psychiatrically stable um, and interested in becoming self-reliant on their inner ability to sleep. A lot of people have lost touch of the fact that they, they have it and they've spent years and years looking outside themselves. And so the idea that it's actually still in there and they just have to touch base with it again, sometimes a little bit foreign. So a little bit of an adventurous spirit can be helpful. The most common sleeping disorder besides insomnia that tends to come to people's attention is obstructive sleep apnea. And so when I'm doing this screening and I'm talking, or like I was talking earlier about pathological sleepiness, the most common undiagnosed sleeping disorder is obstructive sleep apnea. And there are lots of interventions for it. People with sleep apnea really need to have intervention. Um, all of the public health messaging about the dangers of not sleeping well are not pointed at people with insomnia. The people with insomnia up on their phones in the middle of the night reading the internet are the ones reading those messages and getting scared, right? The messages really revolve around that particular population um, who tend to have sleep apnea. Um, there are other conditions like um, periodic um, limb movement disorder, which is another common one that can masquerade as insomnia to people who aren't aware of what to look for. Again, characterized by that kind of pathological sleepiness during the day. Um, there are about 86 sleeping disorders, I think, currently in the big book. <laughs> And they tend to fall into category, a category of insomnia being uh, one, a subset, circadian rhythm disorders being another subset, and then this whole other group, which are the, the breathing-related disorders and the hypersomnia is people who sleep too much because of the um, condition that they have. There's a huge, huge range of different kinds of sleeping problems that um, people think that they're not sleeping well because they feel rubbish during the day. Um, it could be insomnia and it could be something else as well. So it's always important to get your sleeping problem assessed before Dr. Google um, gets in the way of that. I believe that in life, there's always a reason behind why you do what you do. I think like a lot of people who end up spending a lot of time working with people with sleep, I've had my sleeping troubles for sure. I had two really bad episodes of uh, insomnia. The first one was in my early 20s um, after the death of my spouse. And the second one was later in my life. And I used CBTI that second time around because I became aware of it um, and was able to access it. And it completely transformed my sleep. But when I look back to my first episode of insomnia, a lot of the things that I did in my life coincided with resolving that insomnia line up quite neatly with a lot of the mindfulness and acceptance principles that at least underpin how I work with people with, with sleeping trouble. So for example, when people have a lot of trouble sleeping, the sleeping issue starts to fill the whole frame of their life. 
becomes really big and they start canceling things and they start not doing things or not taking back, not seeing people. So the rest of the world becomes really small. And as I grew through my bereavement, my life started becoming richer and I started doing more things and having more going on. And the sleeping issue kind of took its rightful place as a little pocket over here. And I stopped paying so much attention to it and I stopped worrying about it and it went away. And it's, that is part of the now what I see is the cognitive side and the relaxation side and the values-based living your life side of the work that I do with sleep now in a more formal way happened kind of accidentally to me um, earlier in my 20s. Stress impacts our body in a huge variety of ways, but does stress also impact the rest that we have at night when we're no longer thinking thoughts and our brain is no longer active as we're awake? People take for granted if they don't have sleeping problems. So people can get away with a little bit if they've got good sleep. They can do that for a little while. But what happens is because we've spent our whole life only sleeping and only being intimate in bed, we generally don't sleep elsewhere and we're generally not intimate elsewhere on a regular basis. The thing that we do in bed is sleep and that's what the bed is for. That's a really, really strong association with a fundamental biological need. So that, that attachment and that relationship is really strong. When we start to interfere with it by doing other things that we could do in bed or we could do out at the kitchen table or whatever, like working on, on the laptop, for example, it loosens that relationship. Then you're spending time awake in bed, plus you're doing something other than sleeping. So you're doubly weakening it. Then if you're doing something stressful, you're adding a, a triple layer of, of stress, anxiety, particularly in the time that we're in now, whether it's COVID or elections or whatever's going on where you're living in the world, scrolling on your phone, checking up on everything every five minutes is, even if you don't feel like it's stressful, it's stressful. <laughs> um, it's constantly challenging us. It's constantly kind of our phones are a little bit of an addiction, right? Really hard to put them down. They live under a lot of people's pillows. It's the first thing they pull out and they look at Facebook, see what's going on in the world first thing in the morning. Um, and that really erodes that, uh, that relationship between bed and sleep. And so if people notice that they're having difficulty sleeping for whatever reason, um, one of the fundamental principles of the work that I do is to say, if it's safe for you, get out of bed, take those wakeful feelings, take that stress, take your thoughts about work, process them someplace else, and then come back to bed when you're sleepy. That is reinforcing to your body and your mind that all that stuff happens someplace else. It happens in the home office, doesn't happen in bed. But when I'm sleepy again, I take that back to bed because that is the reinforcement that I want to uh, encourage. So what does this sleep cycle actually do for us when we're at complete rest and asleep and shut off to the rest of the world? Most of what we know about sleep and the functions of different parts of sleep happens to come from what we know and observe about people who don't get those things. So it's a little bit of an indirect observation. <laughs> um, so anything I say here is caveated by a million studies that may say something else because there's just so many different questions about it. Um, the first couple of stages of light sleep that we tend to go, go into and also pop back into at different parts of the night, kind of more transitional, transitional phases. And I kind of consider them more like rest stops. We're a little bit more conscious. Our sleep is a little bit lighter. The lighter phases of sleep, I kind of consider like rest stops. 
our body's doing lots of busy work and doing the hard work of tissue repair, um, memory consolidation, and all of those sorts of things in those deeper phases of sleep. And then we come back up. We don't always notice that we're almost awake, but most of us will wake up multiple times at night and usually one or two times that we actually remember. And it's really common for people with insomnia in particularly because they have this hypervigilance, this, this arousal that makes it difficult for them to get that deep sleep. They spend a lot of time in that light sleep. And a lot of times people will think that they're actually awake because they'll be like, I'm thinking about all of this stuff because they're in those really light layers at the top where a polysomnography will say, no, you actually, you were sleeping. Their partner will say you were snoring and they're convinced that they were awake because their brain is so active. Of course, the more time you spend in those active, lighter layers of sleep, you're spending proportionally less time in those those deeper layers. Um, we all cycle through all of those layers as long as they're not interrupted by something like uh, heavy alcohol use, which tends to wipe out our slow wave sleep. Certain medications will disrupt other parts of sleep as well, but we will cycle through those phases to different degrees um, and spend different proportions of the night in those phases as we get older. In general, they're not hugely relevant to discern between for the average person. But when you're looking at the research, it then depends on what research you're looking at, whether there's four or six or more stages of sleep. There's just so much that we don't know directly about sleep. Again, a lot of what we observe is when people are missing a whole section of sleep for some reason, we can then observe the impact of that. It's much easier to do that than to actually say what happens right there in this section of sleep. We just have so many questions still about it. It's really fascinating. And the final takeaway from our sleep podcast with Tracy, tips to improve your sleep habits and create a better sleep for you. So I would say that for, for the majority of people, learning some way of downloading all of your thoughts before you get to sleep. I like to suggest that right after dinner, Write down what you have to do the next day so you're not thinking about it in the night. Write down your worries and the things that you're gonna do next about them. Ceremoniously fold them up and stick them aside because you don't need those overnight, right? You can deal with that in the morning and you already know what you're going to do. So that can help stop some of that excessive kind of processing in the middle of the night. Some people wake up with their brain going. You just write it all down, get it out, externalize it, make it concrete, set it aside until the next day. Having a buffer zone in the evening where you're doing something relaxing and enjoyable is really important. You don't necessarily have to ban all screens, but the less time you can spend with a laptop right in your face from a light point of view and from a stress point of view is ideal. I suggest people try to avoid working at night, um, particularly when people are working from home, they can kind of work a little bit in the morning and work after the kids go to bed, etc. But I think that's a little bit corrosive to sleep. So I try to encourage people to do a brain dump essentially after dinner. And then after dinner, just have that as domestic time. A consistent wake up time would be the next most important thing. If people don't have difficulty sleeping, they can experiment with when to go to bed, but a consistent wake up time to kind of keep resetting the cycle and the circadian rhythm and kind of keep that locked in is quite important. And the final thing would be, if you're not sleeping, don't be in bed. A huge thank you to Tracy for joining us on this episode of A Couple with a Coach, all about our sleeping habits. I hope that from everybody listening to this podcast, that there is something you can take away to improve your own sleep, even if that is just one thing 
I hope that you manage to have a better night's sleep or a less restless night's sleep. If you're looking to hit Tracy up over any of her socials, you can find her at Instagram, Tracy the Sleep Coach. You can also find her website online as well, Tracy the Sleep Coach too. And the same with Facebook. She will be tagged in all of our socials along Facebook and Instagram as well as on the website. So if you do have any issues, you'll be able to get her there. Guys, thank you very much for listening to our first episode of A Couple with the Coach for 2021. I hope to bring out some more of these podcasts throughout the year, uh, hopefully a little bit more consistently than last year. And I look forward to recording many more for you. Thank you. Have an awesome day.